Hey, why don't you find a seat real briefly, if you can. Let me share a few things, and we're going to end. I'm going to skip um, the announcements and the uh, whatever else I'm supposed to do. Uh, we will uh, receive an offering um, at the end. Um, and um, I, I really uh, believe this, and I'm not saying this in any way to try to like manipulate an outcome, but <clears throat> I really think that God is going to place on, on people's hearts um, here in specific at, at the Seattle campus uh, to sow in like real radical, generous ways. Um, for the furtherance of the gospel uh, in this city. And that might be somebody here tonight, uh, might be somebody watching online, but I, I just really sense in my heart, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying this with any sense of manipulation or even motivation. I don't really try to motivate people to give here. I just create opportunities and people determine what they feel like is in their heart to do, but I really think God is going to move on, on people's hearts uh, in five-figure and in six-figure gifts as, as people sow into the mission of revival here in Seattle. I just really sense it. And um, I would encourage you, um, if you're here tonight, this isn't my message. I'm not even really going to preach. I think I'm just going to read some scripture, and then we're going to pray for people. But um, if you're here uh, tonight or... Uh, maybe you're watching online and, and you haven't yet made a commitment to support the work of God here in this region through the giving of tithe and offering, I'm going to encourage you to do so because I think that there is something that, that happens that breaks loose um, in the hearts of men and women. And, and I think something breaks loose in the spirit when people respond uh, to an outpouring of his spirit in radical generosity. You see this in Acts 2. You see it in Acts 4. Um, you see it with every historic revival over the last 2,000 years. People operate in generosity as it pertains to their time, talent, and treasure because when the flames of revival begin to stir in a local congregation, you better believe it's going to inconvenience you. And I just, I just think, and again, like I'm not trying to hear my heart. Like I'm really not trying to sign up for anything else. I'm, I'm really not. I'm trying to sign up for less this year than I've done in the past. But I'm just going to go ahead and say it because I feel like I need to be faithful to do it. But it's just not going to surprise me, DB, if, if, if for a season we move into like nightly or, or, or more regular gatherings here on this campus. And I, I don't say that because I'm trying to start another service or because I'm trying to get worship team to come and play at one more thing. But um, there is something about contending and, 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 and through the construct of what's called prevailing prayer grabbing a hold of that which God desires to do and, and, and stoking the flames of revival through prayer and contending. And uh, I think in the American church, we've gotten so used to talking about revival and then relegating the move of God's spirit to 25 minutes on like a Sunday evening and then like everybody feeling good about revival and then going home. And I just think when God shows up, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't really care about your schedule. 
and he doesn't really care about the inconvenience uh, of your life. Not like he doesn't care like he's being rude, but when God shows up, it's his way or it's no way. <laughs> it's his power or it's nobody else's power. And one of the things that, 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 that are hallmarks of revival movements, number one is, is God releases radical generosity. And number two, it's not just generosity in finances, but in time and in, in talent. All of a sudden, people are motivated in their hearts to make room for God to fill them. Um, the issue is not that God doesn't desire to pour out His Spirit. The issue is, is that for so many of us, we don't have room left for Him to pour anything into. Our containers are already filled up with the concerns of life and the anxieties of tomorrow and the regrets of yesteryear and the fears of the unknown and our busy schedules and the things that continually compete for our time and our affection and our attention. And, and we're like, God poured out. And he's like, I am. And there's other people who are catching it, but you're so full of you that you've got no room for, for any of me. And I, just, I just think when God shows up, there are a couple hallmarks. There are a couple signs of, of revival. And I love how much people are talking about revival today, but my concern is that it's turning into like a little bit of a buzzword or like a tagline. And like everything is like everything is, is called revival, you know? It's like, well, if we sang that song one more time than we were supposed to, it's revival. And if service lasts five more minutes, it's revival. And if pastor's really excited, it's revival. And I'm like, not that I'm against any of those things, but when God shows up, there's no debate on whether or not he's there. <clears throat> because a move of God's spirit doesn't need to be announced in order to attract. People just know. They're like, oh, the wind is blowing. Let me move heaven and earth to get there because I need to be a part of it. And I love that even on this night, folks are getting born again on the UW campus as evangelism teams are going out. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. I want to show you a picture this evening of, of a place that Lydie and I and a team from Pursuit had um, the privilege of, of visiting a little less than a year ago. We took a um, tour group to uh, the nation of Israel, and um, we, we were able to tour uh, the Holy Land, and um, one of my favorite places to visit uh, when I'm in Israel is um, the upper room, which is uh, still there today uh, in Jerusalem. And it's managed or overseen by um, the Orthodox Church. All of the holy sites are split uh, either between the Christians, the Catholics, uh, or, um, uh, or, 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 or the Orthodox. And, and they kind of divvy them up on who oversees what as part of the legacy and the memorial to the ministry of Christ. And this, this site is, is um, still used today. It's still toured today by, by millions of pilgrims from around the world who come, and especially from the Pentecostal tradition where the upper room plays such a significant part in the kind of dispensation, the new era of God's outpouring of his spirit. And I've been to Israel now three times, and every time I, I visit the upper room because it's one of my favorite places to go. And if you ever come with me to Israel, you'll you'll see this. But when you go to the the the, the holy sites, they either have like the Catholic nuns that are there or the Orthodox priests that are there, and they're kind of like shooing people along. 
and, and they want to keep it a really holy and in a serene environment and they, they don't really like when people talk too much or take too many pictures or stay for too long in one place. They're always kind of like either shushing you or like moving you out like really quickly. And a few years ago, I was with a team and we, we went to the upper room and for us, like, you know, standing in the upper room is kind of this surreal, transcendent, out-of-body experience because you're like, oh, it happened here. It happened here. When you look uh, outside um, those windows, uh, you are staring down into a courtyard below. And that courtyard is where um, the 3,000 would have gathered to hear the proclamation of the gospel as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. So you're like there where the church was birthed. And so a few years ago, we, we were there with a team and there's all these good Pentecostals and Charismatics. We're all excited and people's praying in tongues and singing and shouting. And like literally like 30 seconds after we got in the upper room, they're like, all right, yeah, y'all have had your fun. Keep on moving, keep on moving. And it's like a very kind of like strict environment. And when we went with a pursuit team last year, I was like, I know what's going to happen. We'll get in there and Lighty's going to bring his guitar and we're going to sing a half of one chorus and, and the priests are going to move us along real quick, real quick. And being in Israel is crazy because you have tour groups from around the nation. You hear so many different languages that are being spoken. You've got tour groups from sub-Saharan Africa, from the Asian continent, from... Uh, of course, the Middle East from Western Europe and Eastern Europe and South America and Central America, and they're all carrying their flags. So think about it. You're standing in the upper room. All of these tour groups are converging upon it because it's just slammed with people all day. And they're each holding different flags that represent the nations that they are from. And so Pursuit's in there. We got like 40 or 50 people and Lottie busts out his guitar and, and, and he begins to sing. And the problem is, you know, when, when Lottie begins to sing, you know what I mean? The wind of God starts blowing. I'm like, here we go. I just, you know, I know what's going to happen. We're in trouble now. And so I was with one of the Israeli leaders of, of the tour group and I could see he was getting like a little antsy, like y'all's not supposed to be doing this and it's too loud and you got to move along and you've been here too long. And so... I, uh, I pulled him aside and acted like I was really interested in the architecture of the room and started to ask him like a thousand different questions. Oh, and the plaster on the wall, and how did that get there? And he's like, I, I, don't, I don't know. And I'm like, well, tell me more, you know? And so uh, I ended up striking up like a seven-minute conversation with him just talking about the dumbest stuff in the world. But it bought our team enough time to do something I've never seen another tour group be able to do for that long which is stand in the upper room and worship and believe that God by his own spirit was pouring out afresh and anew on the nations of the earth. And it was just this crazy experience. And I want to read for you this evening, um, just briefly the Acts 2 narrative. Again, I've got a message I've written entitled 12 Signs of a True Revival, but um, I don't think I'm going to preach it uh, because... Um, I assume it's too late, but uh, just let me read. <laughs> let me read. Thanks, Mom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, let me read Acts. Um, let me read Acts. Because I, I, want, I want you to cap capture a vision of not just that which is historically true, but that which is contemporarily available to you and I. 
<clears throat> On the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all, the disciples, all 120 of them, they were with one accord and then in one place. The day of Pentecost, although Pentecostals like to claim it as their day, <laughs> was actually a Jewish feast that Moses instituted. And it was to celebrate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And it was a yearly feast that was celebrated right around the time of harvest that gave thanks to God for the giving of the law. Fast forward 2,000 years from the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and on the day of Pentecost, it is not the law that is given, but the spirit that is given. And in doing so, unlocks a harvest from the nations that still reverberates today. The Bible says that they were all with one accord and in one place, meaning this, they were unified in their purpose, in their mission, in the reason for which they came, which is why I have become so intentional about reminding people about the culture of who pursuit is, because I don't want you to show up on Sunday night and then be disappointed that you didn't receive something that you came expecting. I thought pastor was going to tell a lot of jokes and like this felt like serious and uh, like I don't know how to do the joke thing. Some guys do it really well. I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize anybody else, but like, I mean, I barely know how to read and I kind of know how to preach. And that's like the one thing that God has put as a redemptive calling on my life. But I figure if people are willing to set aside a couple hours of their time on a Sunday, then we ought to give them the only text that has the power to divide bone and marrow and in doing so inspire life to come up from dead places, which is the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, unchanging. And it carries the character, the heart, and the DNA of God for our contemporary time. <laughs> when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place and watch, and suddenly, and suddenly, and suddenly, without a PR release, without a billboard, without an Instagram graphic, and suddenly. Why? Because when God is in the midst, it will seem suddenly to you, but it's not suddenly to him. God has held this moment in his heart for all of eternity. He has always desired to pour out his spirit on people, not just that the spirit would rest on people for specific tasks like it did in the Old Testament, but that it would indwell the very temple of their hearts and that the Spirit of God would take permanent residence in the life of the believer, filling them with boldness and courage for the days that are ahead. This moment was suddenly to the disciples, but it was a thousand years in the making for the God that we serve. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. It was audible in a physical sense. It, it, was, it was something that was disruptive. It was, it was off-putting in a sense. It represented a transition out of the material and into the transcendent. It 
communicated to those who had gathered in the room that they were crossing over into a holy moment. Think about, for example, when you attend a wedding and uh, the groom is walking down the parents and the, the bridesmaid and the groomsmen are walking down the center aisle and taking their places on the stage and different guests and members of the family are finding their seat and, and then all of a sudden, whoever's on the keys or controlling the music in the back, it, they, they, they will shift the tone and the track and the tenor. And all of a sudden, it will represent that the bride is about to walk down the aisle. And what happens? As the sound shifts, it signals to the people who are in the room that the moment that they have... The moment they have been waiting for has arrived. And what happens? Everybody stands in honor to dignify the covenant that they are about to experience. Why? Because marriage is honorable amongst all men. And so as the bride makes her way down the center aisle without even the priest or the pastor having to tell the people, what do they intrinsically do? They all rise. It was a sound that, that shifted. We are going from a secular moment into a, a holy moment from a normal moment into a, into a sacred moment. It, 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 was, it was similar to the sound that the high priest heard in the temple when Christ was crucified on the cross and gave up his spirit and the curtain was rent in two from top to bottom. It was a sound that signified we are crossing over into a new covenantal age by which all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And just like the temple curtain was rent in two, the body of Christ was torn and now we enter in through the veil of his torn flesh into right relationship with the Father. It was an audible sound released from heaven that signified to those who had gathered. You are now transitioning into another covenantal age and things will never be the same. It's like when a baby is born in the hospital and if it don't come out crying, the doctor is going to give it a little spanking on the rear end to get that baby to start crying. So it clears its lungs of the ambiotic fluid. It represents that there is new life that is arriving. It's not the cry that brings sadness to your heart. It's the cry that brings joy to your heart. It's representing a new life has arrived. A new chapter is being written. A new season of my life is about to begin. It was an audible sound. It was a physical manifestation that represented a spiritual reality. And that's why I, I don't have time for the critics who always want to criticize how other people interact with the presence of God. Oh, well, that person fell and that person jumped and that person cried and that person laughed and that person shook. First off, it's none of your business. Secondly, almost always the way that God moves is through a physical manifestation that represents a greater spiritual awakening. You think you're casually going to stroll into the presence of God one day when you cross eternity's shores? I'm just here. I'm just not the guy who claps. I'm just not. I'm just, I'm more quiet. I don't like to shout. I just, I'm very reserved. And I just thank you, God, for saving. Heaven's pretty cool. Streets of gold, cherubim and seraphim, four living creatures, saints, elders, and angels. I mean, it's great. It's great. And I just, you know, let me, let me just find a place where I can sit and scroll on my phone. And it's just fine. No, you will be undone in the presence of God. 
You'll be uncool in the presence of God. You're going to shake, rattle, roll, jump, shout, fly. You're going to do it all in the presence of God. Because when you stroll into the presence of the holy. Watch, watch. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Watch. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now there's 120 that are gathered, which means that there are 120 unique and individual tongues of fire that are now resting upon the heads of all those who are gathered, which simply signifies to me this reality. Your flame has your name. It wasn't like Peter sitting next to Andrew going, let me borrow your flame. Let me stick my head close to yours and see if your flame will jump on my head too. But see, that's the reality in, in our world today because we don't have the perseverance or the diligence to seek God for ourselves. We're always trying to borrow somebody else's flame. But when a wind came from heaven and interrupted a three-day prayer meeting in an upper room, all of a sudden they looked around and noticed there is a flame upon each of our heads, which tells me this, in this environment, God has something for you. He's got a flame for you. He's got an anointing for you. He's got oil for you. He's got something special for you. He's got a miracle for you. You don't have to live vicariously through somebody else's experience. It's for you. You were built for this. It's got your name on it. It's been reserved for you. It carries something that causes your personal characteristics, calling, skill sets, and anointings to be animated in a supernatural way. Your flame has your name. And now watch, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now it was an unknown language to them, but it was a known language to God. Because like Paul says in the book of Romans, when the spirit prays through you, it's through groans and utterances that no man can understand. And can I tell you, you have not yet grabbed a hold of the hem of his garment until you pray prayers that nobody else can understand. I'm not saying everybody has to speak in tongues. Don't get it twisted. I'm talking about like Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who was so intent that God would. She would revoke that God would revoke her shame and give her a child. That her lips moved, but no sounds came out. It was a prayer so deeply carried within the container of her soul that it didn't make sense to Eli, but it wasn't Eli's burden to birth. It was Hannah's. And she so tapped in to this desperate cry to the God of her forefathers that she said, I'm not leaving this tabernacle in Shiloh until God hears my prayer. And I'm telling you, you have not met God on the threshing floor of your life until you pray prayers that other people don't understand. And the disciples in this moment begin to speak in unknown languages, in unknown tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now watch. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, 
The multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. It doesn't say the disciples were speaking in those languages. It says men gathered and heard their words in their own language. I believe what's happening in Acts 2 is the Spirit is giving them utterance and they are speaking in the language of heaven. And God is operating by His Spirit as a translator between those words and the ears of the men who are gathered below. They hear, watch... The wonderful works of God, each in their own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these men who speak Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language, which we were born? So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocked them, saying they are full of new wine. They were filled with new wine, just not the new wine that those who had gathered were there to expect. This concept of new wine is, is used all over scripture. I preached it two weeks ago out of John 2, the miracle at the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine, thus beginning the uh, uh, three and a half year you know, career of, of, of his public miracles. And new wine is used all over scripture to, 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 to represent kind of the upon of God's spirit, a fresh awakening of sorts by which God does new things in a new way and inspires people unto new and greater uh, realities. And, and that's what's happening here in this moment. The, the crowds are confused. And the only rebuttal that they have to the disciples who are gathered is the same rebuttal that Eli has to Hannah. You're drunk. And, and Hannah responds, no, we're not, I'm, I'm not drunk. I'm desperate. And in fact, I'm not leaving until God gives me a, a miracle. And, and Eli says to her, God will grant you your request. He will revoke your shame. He will open your womb. You will have a son. And Hannah responds, and when I do, I will give him to the Lord and I will raise him in the presence of God. And she did. Now watch, watch. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice, and he said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let these words be known to you, and heed my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which would have been 9 a.m. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. All of a sudden, Peter, under the unction of God's Holy Spirit, is now exegeting for the first time a New Testament passage in accordance with an Old Testament prophecy. For the first time, outside of Christ, there is somebody who is making an ontological connection in between the covenants. What Joel prophesied in generations past is now being fulfilled in your midst. This is that. Now watch, watch what he says, quoting Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. On my men's servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I shall show wonders in heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and the awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now you notice, as Peter quotes the prophet Joel, that as he goes through the taxonomical classifications of people in that society, what he is communicating is that the Spirit of God no longer just rests on men. It no longer just rests on a prophet or a king or a judge. No, all who call upon the name of the Lord can and will be saved, and by virtue of their salvific experience, the Spirit of God will fill them up to overflowing. So if they're a male, they're qualified. If they're a female, they're qualified. If they're a servant who is low on the socioeconomic ladder, they are qualified. If they're a king and a priest, they are qualified. If they're young, like a son or a daughter, they're qualified. If they're old, like a grandfather or a grandmother, they are qualified. Why? Because this is the dawn of a new age of God's spirit. And it's interesting to me that he says the young will prophesy and the old will dream dreams. Because all throughout the Old Testament literature, actually that type of kind of bifurcated linguistic uh, 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 reality is reversed. It's the young who have dreams and it's the old who prophesy. It's the young who are the dreamers. It's like Joseph who wears the coat of many colors whose life was identified by the dreams of the young. But when Peter preaches Joel's sermon and says, this is being fulfilled in your midst, he says, no, actually the spirit of God, which is the ultimate qualifier on your spiritual resume, will even enable the young to prophesy, not out of their own knowledge or out of their own experience, but out of the depth of the river that they have been dunked under. And it will cause the old men and the old women who think that their best days are behind them to dream new dreams. And so it flips the script in on itself and says, watch what the spirit will do. Now Peter preaches, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You know where David's tomb is? It's below the upper room. You can visit it today. It's in the basement floor of the upper room. When Peter is preaching and he's saying, hey, and David's tomb is with us to this day, so make no mistake, this ain't like some sort of like new gospel I'm trying to like preach to you. This is the fulfillment of an old gospel in your midst. He pulls on the patriarchs of old like David. And he says, just like David, who is buried in this very building, this word is for you today. David's bones are still in a tomb in the basement of the upper room. The Jews have turned it into a synagogue. And so they have Jewish men on one side and women on the other side who day and night make prayers to God around the tomb of David. And on the floor right above them, a bunch of Christians pack out the upper room to commemorate the day of Pentecost. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, that he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. Then Jesus, this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Now it is said of Jesus that he sits on the throne of David. Watch the connection Peter is making. 
in the same way that God is pouring out his spirit and the tomb of David is literally below us. This outpouring of God's spirit on the day of Pentecost is representing and signifying that Christ did not stay in the grave. He did not stay in Hades. His flesh did not stay or, or, or succumb to destruction, but he is seated now above on the throne. He is literally seated above that where David lies. So watch what happens. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, watch, they were cut to the heart. Because only the preaching of the gospel has the ability to cut to the heart. <laughs> if you can be argued into a relationship with God, you can be argued out of a relationship with God. You need to be cut to the heart. If you're here today and the preaching of the gospel has not yet cut you to the heart, you've got an opportunity to put fresh faith in the risen Savior. This is not some sort of like apologetic argument by which you've weighed everything and then you consider it makes more sense than it doesn't make, so kind of let me try out this Jesus guy. No, the preaching of the gospel is for the express purpose of cutting you to the heart. Why? Because when your heart is cut, the heart of stone gives way and reveals the heart of flesh. When your heart is cut, it allows the seed of the gospel to be planted in the fractures of that which has been sliced open. And through the watering of God's word and the empowerment of his spirit, that seed of the gospel produces a tree of life. Watch. Then Peter said to them, now when they had heard this, watch, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children who are far off and as many who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Watch. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church, watch, daily those who were being saved. When I'm saying that I sense that the Lord may, and I don't know when or how or what it will look like, but might take us into a season of like daily meetings or more reoccurring meetings, it's not like me just going, we need to meet more. Like, again, the last thing I need is another thing to do. But what I'm saying is this, when the Spirit of God rushes in on a people, you can't keep them from daily gathering. They're like, no, I must gather around this God who has done this work in my life. And they ate together and they was in each other's houses and in simplicity, they gave offerings unto God and they sold their possessions, making sure that all of the needs were covered. And on that day, about 3,000 were saved. If you head back to the book of Exodus, when Moses is given the law on Mount Sinai, some of you remember this story. Moses comes down the mountain and he hears the noise of the people who are celebrating, but they're not celebrating the Lord. They're celebrating a golden calf that has been made because they got nervous because Moses was on the mountain for too long. And Moses comes down and he yells at Aaron and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I don't know, Moses, don't blame me. We threw our gold in the fire and out popped a golden calf. So Moses is really heated and you'd be heated too. It's like, I went away to pray, 
40 days I've been on this mountain, God literally wrote on a stone tablet, I'm bringing it back to you and your excuse for why you are now lost in pagan idolatrous worship is we threw our gold in the fire and out popped the cow. And Aaron's like, yeah, I mean, yeah. And so Moses gets heated. You remember what he did? He got the Levites, the priests. He said, grab your swords. He said, go through the camp. And everyone who does not repent, kill them. And you know what the Bible says? On that day, about 3,000 perished. Fast forward to the day of Pentecost. And the spirit is given. And the curse of the law is reversed. And 3,000 are saved. And the gift of the Holy Spirit made manifest through a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire that sat upon each of their heads was now poured out on 3,000 who gathered on the patio below and thus begun the local church. When you're born in the fire, the smoke does not satisfy. And as we're singing these songs and praying these prayers and calling people to the altar and praying for folks and believing for things, in my heart, it's like I've got this thing that wants to settle for nothing less than an outpouring like the disciples experienced in an upper room that I've stood in, memorialized in the pages of scripture for all of eternity from Acts chapter two. When they were gathered in unity, with one heart and with one mind. Suddenly, God released his wind and literally the rest is church history. That's who we are. That's what we're contending for. That's what we're believing for. And only an outpouring from a God like that can save a city like Seattle. Come on, let's stand as we close.